epistle lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 3. We are closing out our series through these seven letters by reading verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks as we gather around your word this morning, and we ask that your spirit would dig out ears for us to hear, that we may listen attentively to all that our Lord Jesus says about us, the church. Bring these things into application and speak, Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. As a freshman in college, I thrashed about attempting to find my place. I did my best to rebel against God, but I was wildly unsuccessful at it. God's promises that were sealed to me as a small child when I was baptized as an infant, they clung to me. And God was convicting me and leading me back to himself. And so after a few months of this, I sought out a Bible study and began attending a local Presbyterian church. I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. And through some new friends, including a young lady named Melissa Timms, I was introduced to a new campus minister. His name was Ken Curry. And he showed up on the campus of Furman University to begin a new campus ministry that was rooted out of the local Presbyterian church. Ken befriended me and taught me a great deal about what it meant to walk with God. And on Tuesday afternoons of my freshman year in college, that was my afternoon to spend time with Ken. One Tuesday, I shared with him that one of the guys in the Bible study was frustrated with me. And then I went on to divulge that I really thought it was silly and he was just being sensitive. We were driving in the car. I still remember exactly where we were on the road because things got silent all of a sudden. And Ken called me Chucky. You don't have permission to do that. All of a sudden, he said, well, Chucky, <laughs> you do have this way about you. And suddenly, I just began to panic. 
what was about to happen. I knew what was about to happen. He was about to address me. And this older guy who I really admired and respected, I was fearful that everything about our relationship was about to fall apart because he was about to critique me and my 18-year-old self. He was about to correct me and reprove me about something I was not doing right. It was scary. And so I was panicking inside and at the same time also trying to listen to him. And this is how we typically approach confrontation. It's frightening to us. It's scary. We fear that we're going to lose the respect of other people, that they are going to disapprove of us, that they are disgusted with us and frustrated with us. But that wasn't the case with Ken. Ken loved me, and he loved me so much that he was willing to confront me, and I wish that this was the only time that he had done so, but it went on. He got eight more years of it with me, and those words he spoke to me that day, they were life-giving. I still remember them. They still make a lot of sense, and it's just the same when it comes to Jesus when he speaks a severe word to us. Because in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, Jesus does speak a severe word. It's a word of critique. We've seen in these seven letters that there often is a commendation and then a critique. Well, to the church in Laodicea, it's just straight critique. It is severe. But it is given to us in such a severe way because it reveals to also, also to us the severe mercy of God. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't despise this church in Laodicea. He's not disgusted with them and just fed up. He doesn't just boil over in an angry tirade against them and give them critique. If you look in verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That it is out of Jesus' love for his church that he engages the church. That his critique is a sign of his commitment. That he wants the church to return to its purposes. Those purposes which God has for it in the world. And so he speaks a harsh word. And what's so important for us as we read this difficult letter to Laodicea is to answer this question. What exactly is it that draws Jesus into confrontation with the church? And the answer is before us in verses 15 and 16. And we see that Jesus confronts us when the church loses its purpose. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, typically, this metaphor of the hot and the cold, Jesus is referring to water, and we understand this, that we are to either be all in with Jesus or all out. It's understandable how this passage is typically read that way, but it misses something of the context. You see, in Laodicea, it was a city known for its hot springs. The hot springs were actually across the Lycus Valley, and Hot water in the ancient world was very valuable. It was considered to have medicinal purposes. And so people from all around the ancient world would travel to Laodicea to the hot springs. But the one thing that Laodicea lacked, even though it was a very prominent city, was it lacked a source of cool water. 
Cool water was also very valuable in the ancient world because you needed cool water in order to drink, in order to ingest your food. And so the extremes of water temperature were considered valuable. Hot water was medicinal. Cool water was good for your health and for your digestion. But in Laodicea, lacking a source of cool water, they actually had to build a pipeline over from the hot springs. And by the time the water arrived in the city, the temperature of the water, it was tepid. It was lukewarm. It was really no good. Laodicea as a city had bad water, and Jesus plays off of this in his imagery and critique because the water really didn't have any use. It was really of no value. It was cold or hot water. It was the extremes that were good. And this water was rather useless. And yet it was what they had to drink. And this is Jesus' critique of the Laodicean church. That he wanted it to be the extremes, to be hot or cold. Then it has value to the world around it, but rather it's just lukewarm. It's tepid. It's of no good to anyone, and it's of no good to God. And so Jesus says, if you don't change, it'll be spit out. It's not drinkable. And so it's essential for us to understand what that lukewarmness looks like, though. What is the lukewarm flavor that Jesus gets in his mouth of this Laodicean church, and why does he want to spit it out? And there's three things that we see in the letter here. The first is this, is that in Laodicea, there is a lack of spiritual awareness. And this is what lukewarmness, the one of its strongest characteristics is, is that there is a lack of spiritual self-awareness. You find this in verse 17, where there is a contrast that is drawn. Jesus says, for you say, and then in the second half of the verse, He says, not realizing that. And so Jesus sets up a contrast. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And then you are not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There was a massive self-perception issue in Laodicea. They believed one thing about themselves, and God saw another thing about the community that they did not have an accurate self-assessment, that they did not see themselves clearly. And so at the end of verse 18, you'll notice that Jesus counsels the church. He commands them to buy from him, and he says that they are to buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. Jesus wanted them to have an accurate perception and understanding of themselves. There's a bit of humor in this counsel that Jesus gives because Laodicea was the home of an enormous medical school. And the region was known for a certain ointment or salve that was produced there. And people literally from all over the ancient world came to them in order to buy this salve to heal all kinds of medical things related to the eyes. And Jesus is saying, yes, you may have a certain ointment. You may have a certain salve in your possession. You may be able to purchase that, but you need to come to me and buy the salve that I have on offer in order to correct your spiritual sight. 
Because Jesus wants us to have a level of spiritual self-awareness. That we can accurately diagnose where we are. That we can hear his voice and know where we stand. After I graduated from seminary, I began to notice that my eyesight was changing. The glasses that I had no longer worked that well, and it was particularly those showing up at night. And so for several years, I just put up with this and thought it was just mostly because I was tired, perhaps, that I wasn't seeing well while driving at night. I talked to my eye doctor about it. He gave me a new pair of glasses. He said, well, your prescription slightly changed. And then I went back to him because it wasn't working. And I'd begun having headaches, and it was not too pleasant, and I wanted to just get this fixed. The eye doctor told me that I was just being silly and needed to adjust to my new glasses, and so on and on our conversations went for a couple of years. The headaches got worse and worse, so I decided to get another medical opinion. And no, I did not consult WebMD. I went to another eye doctor who was rather old school. He had all the old instrumentations. He didn't use computers. And he sat down with me for about an hour and a half. And after that hour and a half, he said, ah, I know what's going on. And he had diagnosed me with a certain condition where I have a misshapen cornea. And so, of course, glasses weren't fixing it. The only way to adjust my eyesight where it would be healthy once again would be to use a hard contact, a glass contact. And so then I purchased my contact, and this had been going on for about four years at this point. And the day when I put the hard contact into my eye, I walked outside, and suddenly life had all kinds of detail to it. There was color, and there was distinction, and things were not so blurry. But the thing is, over that course of four or five years, while my cornea had become misshapen and my eyesight had degenerated, I wasn't completely aware of how bad it was. I knew a couple of symptoms that things were not quite right, but I didn't know just how far it had slipped. And then suddenly I gained this new perception and understanding of the world when this contact was put in my eye and I saw clearly. And friends, that's the great danger of when we're not spiritually self-aware just like me and my eyesight, is I didn't know quite how bad it was. I was blind to it. I didn't know. And that's what Jesus says lukewarmness looks like. And that's the most difficult thing about lukewarmness is we don't even know we're lukewarm. We don't know we've lost our usefulness to God. And so we have to become incredibly spiritually self-aware self-perceiving understanding of where we are in front of God. And this is the first piece of what that lukewarmness looks like, is that we are not self-aware. Second, there is a false sense of security. In that comparison that is set up, Jesus says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. This is how the Laodicean church thought of itself. And the church followed after the city. You see, Laodicea sat at the crossroads. It was a major trading center. They had a massive medical school. They had a large thriving industry because there was a peculiar sheep that grew in the area that grew a very fine black wool. And it was coveted all over the ancient world. And then as one commentator put it, Laodicea, due to these factors, became somewhat a banking center in the Lycus Valley. It was a prominent city, bigger than Heropolis and bigger than Colossae. 
They were the Swiss bankers of the ancient world. It was wealthy. People had everything they needed. And Jesus critiques the Laodicean church for following that same attitude that they said they needed nothing. They were complacent and they were content. They found their resources in this world to give them what they need. And Jesus knew the incredible power that money can have over the human heart. Jesus never critiqued someone for actually possessing money, but he knew the dangers of being possessed by our money. And in Laodicea, the people had capitulated to that possession. They had simply given into it. And he then calls them in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They considered themselves rich and to have everything they need because they were affluent. And Jesus says, no, you're poor, you're pitiable. You have everything you want, but you have nothing you really need is what Jesus is saying to these wealthy Christians and that they were in danger of being lulled off to sleep. And friends, this is what the comforts of the world can do to us. And it's an important word for us to hear as we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. A level of affluence across the society that has never been known or sustained as it has in the United States. It's important for us to hear because we too can be dragged off by our possessions. We can become consumed with them. Even if we don't have them, oftentimes possessions are still what direct and dictate our lives. And Jesus is instructing us to come and buy from him true riches. And this is where Jesus is alluding through the Apostle John back to Isaiah 55, where we're told not to spend our wealth, not to give our lives to that which can't satisfy, but to come to God and buy and eat rich food. And then the irony is without money, come and buy. Because, friends, we don't buy anything from God. We come to Him for that rich fare, for that food that satisfies, and He freely gives it to us as we seek it from Him. And so Jesus is calling the church back to its true source of riches because they had lost their way and become complacent and self-satisfied and comfortable with their wealth. John Newton, who is one of my favorite pastors, he was in the Church of England. He was a slave trader, converted, and then we know him as the hymn writer. He was also a correspondent. He wrote hundreds and thousands of letters across England in spiritual discourse with people throughout the church. He had a correspondence series with a man named John Catlett, who was not a Christian. He was a worldly man. I want you to listen to Newton's response to him. They had a strong friendship, and so he had the privilege of friendship. He could speak strongly to him, and you'll note it here. Newton is arguing with him and saying, look, I know all the worldly pleasures you pursue because I once had them. And so he starts to work through that. Listen to what he says. If you were to send me an inventory of your pleasures, how charmingly your time runs on and how dexterously it is divided between the coffee houses, playhouse, the card table, and tavern, 
with intervals of balls, concerts, etc. I could answer that most of these I have tried and tried again, and know the utmost that they can yield. How far do you act below yourself? If you know no higher purpose of life than these childish dissipations, together with the more serious business of rising early and sitting up late to amass money, that you may be able to enlarge your expenses. Newton is playing with him and joking that all you're going to do if you amass large amounts of money is increase your expenses and have more of a headache. He said the only great advantage that you have in accumulating such wealth and occupying yourself with it is that it may relieve you of the trouble and burden of thinking if you can entertain yourself to death. And friends, this is our Lord Jesus' concern for the church, Laodicea or here in Jacksonville, that our wealth can become an enormous stumbling block, that we can think that we have no need and that we become blind to the things of God. The third piece of the lukewarmness here that takes place and what compromises a church is that there is a compromise also with the culture. In verse 18, Jesus instructs them that they were to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, we have the irony of the black wool that was indigenous to the region that they were famous for. It was very expensive. And Jesus counsels them not to clothe themselves in their black wool that was fine and expensive, but to clothe themselves in white garments, which always represents purity in the Scriptures, and especially in the book of Revelation. That this is how they were to conduct themselves, to clothe themselves in white robes. But then he goes further, so that you may cover the shame of your nakedness and that not be seen. What is exactly he talking about there? This is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 16 and also Ezekiel chapter 23, where the nakedness of the people of Israel was due to their idolatry. It was a metaphor for their idolatry with foreign gods. And so what is happening here in Laodicea seems to be just a layover of what also happened in Sardis and Pergamum and Thyatira, that there was a compromise with the culture. And you remember that the professional associations, they were known as the trade guilds. And to belong to the trade guild gave you success in your business. But the trade guilds were also tied up in idolatrous practices. And the early Christians in the book of Revelation were struggling with identifying themselves with those trade guilds and also the idolatrous practice. And so in several of these churches, the churches had to be criticized by Jesus and told that they were not to participate in that cultural level of compromise, that they couldn't harbor two gods in their hearts, that if Jesus was Lord and was certainly up from the dead, then it meant that we must turn our back on all other forms of worship. They were compromised. Their nakedness was exposed, and they needed to be covered in white robes, And this white garment, of course, is only what Jesus can give to us. When our faith is locked up in Him, when we believe and trust in Him, because that white is a righteousness that only He can give, a purity that only God can deliver to us. We can't muster that up in our own strength or by our own efforts. 
It is given to us, imputed to us by God through Jesus. And He's counseling us to clothe ourselves in Him, not to give ourselves to another God. And so this is how lukewarmness plays itself out. But on the other side of such a savage critique of a church that's about to be spit out, is there any hope? Can you recover from something like this? When Ken began to angle in on me and levy his criticism, I did think, well, this may be the end of our friendship. I don't know. What's going to happen? What would the other side look like? And it didn't look any different. He loved me on the other side of his criticisms. And this is the same for Jesus. When he criticizes a church, he also tells the church how it can recover, how it can come back from such critique. And you find the answer in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is what Jesus wanted for his church. It's what he wants for us as members of that church as well, that we be zealous in our repentance. That when he speaks to us and we hear his word, and his word contradicts the way that we are believing and living, he wants us to turn and to bring our lives in line with what he has said. And the challenge for us when we lack spiritual awareness, when we've been lulled off to sleep by our resources, is are we open to hearing Him? Do we have those ears to hear that Jesus counsels us seven times to have? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to submit ourselves to a Lord who is going to disagree with us? Sinners typically can accept the label of being called sinners until it becomes specific. We like sin as a general category, typically, as Reformed people. We know that we're completely debased, that we're thoroughly sinful, totally depraved. Jesus takes you to that theological principle, but then he's going to take you a step further. He's going to take you into your specific sins specifically as well. He's the Lord of His church. He has the right to do so. And friends, if we can't stomach that, if we can't accept Jesus going crosswise with us, with Him speaking a word that goes against with what we agree, then you really do need to find another faith orientation. You're going to need another religious expression because this one's not going to cut it for you. Jesus loves you so much that He is going to critique you. He is going to discipline you in order that you turn, in order that you be shaped, in order that you follow Him. That's our living Lord's pledge to us. That is the nature of His commitment to us. That He doesn't critique in savage anger in order to bring out a a tirade against you. He critiques that we be useful to him, our master, that we be the kind of church he wants in the world. And so we must be ready to listen to him, eager to repent, to hang on his words and to know what he says. There was a young minister 
who was preaching one of his very first sermons. And John Stott, famous English pastor who passed away a couple of years ago, was in the congregation that day. He was going to be visiting that congregation for several weeks. He was on a holiday. And the young minister, after preaching, was introduced to Mr. Stott, Dr. Stott, excuse me. And when he met him, he immediately asked, can you give me critique? I'm learning how to preach. And John Stott famously responded, I didn't come prepared to critique your sermon. I came not to listen to you, but to hear from God. And it was a wonderful rebuke of a young man seeking to be so professional about what he was doing and forgetting that this is the point of the sermon is to hear from God, to hear God's voice, what God is saying through the Scriptures to us today. How in overhearing this ancient conversation, God continues to minister to us today. And that it's not about a professional critique or a professional performance up front, but it's about hearing the voice of God, what the Spirit says to the churches. And friends, that's what it looks like to walk in the way of repentance. And when we find ourselves out of accord with what is said here, our job is not then to redirect and redirect and rework it, but our job is to submit ourselves to it and trust that God has our good. That the good and loving God who sent His only Son into the world has our good in mind and He is reshaping us and reforming us through His criticism in order that we be clothed in those white garments and we be what He always intended. His critique is severe, but His mercy is even stronger. It is out of His love that Jesus speaks to the church. And this is what He gives to us. This is all that He reveals. And so entrust yourself to Him. Be willing to listen to His voice and hear your loving Master calling you then into what is revealed in verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse has oftentimes been used as an evangelistic verse. It certainly can be uh, bent into that direction, but it is Jesus specifically speaking to the church. And he's saying, let me in. Repent, let me in. And you'll know intimate fellowship with me. You will dine with me. Perhaps an allusion to the Lord's Supper where we will have a communion with him by faith in his body and in his blood. That we'll know a divine fellowship on the other side of our repentance. And Jesus is inviting us into that repentance, telling us all that we'll receive. And then in verse 21, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Another invitation from Jesus that he promises that we'll inherit his new world and everything that is his. After his death and resurrection, he sat at the Father's right hand and he says, you will then sit with me. And what he means is that you will share in my inheritance. Every bit of social capital that he has with God the Father, do you know the marvelous thing he says? That he's going to share that with you. You get to participate in all of that. And because of the fellowship that he offers in the present and the great victory he offers you in the end, he invites you to repent, to turn, to follow him, to put away the lukewarm ways, to be hot or cold and useful to your master. Let's pray.
Father, we all know the dangers of being lukewarm. When we have lost our usefulness to you, and you desire us to be hot or cold, to be on these extremes, useful to you, your church, and the world. And so often we lack a spiritual awareness. We don't even know that we're blind and wretched. Wake us up. Give us eyes to see. Lord, we know that our affluence can drag us away, that we can get lost in our possessions. Help us to see that when we're like that, we're really poor and we need riches from you. And we know that we can be so compromised with the culture around us. Help us not to do that. May we serve you and you alone in our hearts. Lead us in the path and way of repentance. May we fellowship with Jesus, hearing him knocking at the door and receiving him, dining with him, and knowing the great world that lies before us when he returns to make all things right. Be at work in us that we not be lukewarm. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.